you already have your Bibles open to Romans 12. The title of the message this morning is Cling to the Good. Cling to the Good. Let's pray one more time. Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. We praise you for each other. Thank you for each other. Thank you for this church. We ask, Lord, that you would open full throttle that which you want us to hear to make the changes that you want us to make in our lives, in our church, in our communities. Guide us in all discernment and wisdom, we pray by your Holy Spirit for the glory of your name. And it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, last week we looked at verse 9 of Romans 12 and what it means to let our love be without hypocrisy and what it means to abhor or hate what is evil, right? This week we are going to start by finishing the second half of verse 9 and look at what it means to cling to or hold fast to what is good. So what does it mean? to hold fast or cling to what is good, it means that the righteous, the children of God, will have an inclination toward what is good. The, um, well, I should say one Bible commentator says that we should have an affinity toward that which is good. That means that we should not only recognize it, but we should move toward it like we would automatically move toward the light if we were lost in a uh, dark or deep cave. By a show of hands, how many of you have ever gone caving? Anybody gone caving without the guide? Okay. You ever gone caving without the guided tour off on your own reservation it can be very scary at times. You find yourself in pitch blackness, darkness, very dark recesses and nooks and crannies and folds and cavities and just darkness. And if you um, are claustrophobic, forget it. Somebody's got to carry you out. That's how bad it is. But as you work your way out of the cave and you see a very faint light in the distance, a light apart from the light you have on your helmet, your heart kind of leaps within in relief. And as such, you quickly move toward that light. And the closer that you get, the bigger and the brighter the light gets and the better you feel, at least I feel, it's the same with all the good that the Lord has provided for the Christian. We live in a dark, dark world. And many times it feels like it's closing in on us. Just like the walls and the recesses of a cave can easily make us feel claustrophobic, metaphorically speaking. And then all of a sudden, we see the good. And we are so relieved 
just like when we automatically are drawn to the light in the cave, we are drawn, or at least we should be drawn, to the good that God has provided for us. We should not only be drawn to it, but we should cling to it. And the mature Christian will hold fast to the good no matter what the cost might be. I'm going to say that again. The mature Christian will hold fast to the good no matter what the cost might be. And sometimes, indeed, it does cost us to cling to the good. It could cost you a friendship. It could cost you a relationship of a family member. It could cost you your job. There are many things that show that the good is not always cheap. It's not always reasonable from that standpoint. In 1 Peter chapter 3, if you're taking notes, 1 Peter 3, 17, we read, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. In fact, the psalmist says in Psalm chapter 37, verse 27, he says, shun evil and do good. So shall you dwell in the land forever. And the word shun doesn't just mean to turn away from evil. It means to recoil from it, kind of like a snake recoils persistently, abhor it persistently. And shrink back with fear of it, of the evil in the darkness. Don't flirt with evil, church, because you, you will get burned if you do. The Apostle Paul gives Titus a beautiful summary of what and why we should be holding fast to what is good. This is in Titus chapter 2. Verses 12 through 15. Listen to this. It's one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture in the New Testament. Paul says, beginning in verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That means Jew and Gentile. Verse 12, Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. There's that abhorring evil that we talked about last week, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who what? Are zealous for good works. Declare these things, Paul says. Expound upon them. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So, one of God's motives in providing salvation for us was and is to redeem for himself 
and to purify for himself a people, his own people, Paul says. In fact, Paul says that we are God's own possession. And as such, he redeemed us to be people who are zealous for good works. What a rich passage of Scripture. That word zealous means that we are to be impassioned for. It's a strong, earnest, energetic effort. A passionate, devoted, and dedicated means, okay, an eager and purposeful, single-minded action towards good. Mindset towards that which is good. You with me? What's my point? This is very important. My point is that one cannot be about the business of being zealous for good works if one is not holding fast to what is good. One more time. One cannot be about the business of being zealous for good works if one is not holding fast to what is good. The two go hand in hand, like peanut butter and chocolate. <laughs> not peanut butter and jelly, although that goes hand in hand, but chocolate's better. The Bible says so somewhere. So... <laughs> We are zealous to do, we're zealous to do good because we love that which is good and we hold fast to it. So what is that good that we are to hold fast to? It's, it's the complete opposite of the evil that we're to abhor that we talked about last week. Again, it all goes back to antithesis, to opposites, good is antithetical to evil. And I've said in other sermons um, that the world, the flesh, and the devil like to blur the lines between good and evil. We ourselves, the flesh, like to blur the lines. Relativity, the absence of absolutes, is something that the world is very good at. And the devil's very good at. The well-known theologian and author, J.I. Packer, wrote this about Francis Schaeffer, who was one of the greatest thinkers of the 20th century. He wrote, quote, Schaeffer perceived the Western mind as a drift on a trackless sea of relativism and irrationalism. Schaefer posited the idea that the world would eventually come to a place where there is no real distinction between right and wrong or truth and untruth and that in antithesis would eventually be swallowed up in a categoryless, categoryless pan-everythingism. Pan-everythingism. Okay, just about everything in this world 
that we live in that was once wrong is now either right or ferociously debated with someone taking the side of it being right. Am I wrong? Pun intended. Okay. This past week, some of you may have heard that there was an article in USA Today that had to be removed from the paper. This is a national newspaper. Had to be removed from the paper because it put pedophilia on display as something one is born with and cannot help. Now, thank God that there are still enough people in this country to rise up and demand that such an article would be removed or should be removed. The sad thing is that just 10 years ago, no national newspaper in this country would have ever even entertained the idea of posting such an article. But today, unfortunately, we've come to a place in our society where such articles not only can be posted, but in addition, there are more and more people who have no problem with it at all. In fact, it was in the news that many people disagreed with USA Today pulling the article, and worse yet, they agreed with what the article said. So, I've decided to quote some of the passages from the article just to give you an idea of what many people agreed with and wanted to stay in the paper. I'm going to quote, Pedophilia is viewed as among the most horrifying social ills, but scientists who study the sexual disorder, I want you to pay attention to the words, disorder, okay? Scientists who study the sexual disorder say it is also among the most misunderstood. Researchers, I'm still quoting, who study pedophilia say the term describes an attraction, not an action. And using it interchangeably with the word abuse fuels misconceptions. One of the most significant findings is that scientists who study the disorder say pedophilia is determined in the womb. Though environmental factors may influence whether someone acts on an urge to abuse. Next quote. The evidence, this is later on in the article, same article, the evidence suggests it is inborn. It's neurological. And under the heading in the article, if you go online and read it, it's out there. Under the heading, quote, this is not something that people choose 
That's the heading in the article. Seto, this is a scientist with the last name Seto, S-E-T-O. Seto said, quote, pedophilia is something people are born with or at least have a predisposition to. Well, I say, well, which is it? If you're a scientist and you've studied this, then what is it? Are you born with it or do you have a predisposition to it? They're two very different things. Quote, researcher, a research also offers insights into risk factors. Cito said men with pedophilia have a much higher incidence of early childhood head injury. I've been knocked out three times in my life. I'm knocked unconscious three times in my life. And I can tell you right now, I don't lust after kids. One study on diagnosed, diagnosed pedophiles showed they are more likely to report that their mothers had received psychiatric treatment, which suggests the disorder may be influenced by genetic factors. I'm almost done. It gets better. Another scientist is quoted as saying that her clinical observations suggest at least some pedophiles had some bad breaks because they were raised in homes where they were mistreated or neglected. So then everyone raised in a home where they were mistreated or neglected, which is probably more than half the population of the United States, could become justifiably a pedophile. So, according to this article, one article, count, I want you to count, one article, scientists have concluded that you are, quote, born with pedophilia, it's genetic, end quote. You could have pedophilia because you had some head trauma at some point in your life. And you may be a pedophile because your mom had a mental illness, or you may be a pedophile because you just had some bad breaks at home and you were neglected and mistreated. Are you kidding me? Seriously? This is what Francis Schaeffer was talking about. If you blur the lines enough, if you blur the lines enough times, between right and wrong, and you repeat a lie simultaneously enough times, society will divorce itself from the truth and create a new narrative. And that's what's going on here. That which was once intolerable and unaccepted in our society will become not only tolerated, but it will become the norm. Case in point, just this past December, in a country where at one time euthanasia was illegal, it is now not only legal by, on a case-by-case basis for the Ministry of Health, of Health excuse me, in New Zealand to determine if one can euthanize themselves, but now... As of, I think it was December 21st, 
in New Zealand on a case-by-case basis. That's how they soften the blow, okay? It's on a case-by-case basis. If you get COVID-19 and your doctor feels that within the next six months in the future, your quality of life is going to be diminished, you can euthanize yourself. These are the kinds of things that happen in society when the people of that society do not hold fast to that which is good. This is what happens when people in a society begin to flirt with evil instead of abhorring evil. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul says, quote, Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. We would do well to be like Francis Schaeffer in our evangelistic approach. What was his approach? He made it his business on every topic This is what J.I. Packer says, and J.I. Packer's right. Schaefer made it his business on every topic that he handled to cover the either-or choices when beginning to dialogue or debate someone about a particular subject. The either-or is simply antithesis. It's either this or it's that. Schaefer would first present the biblical or Christian stance on a subject or on the subject at hand. Then he would argue that it was this Christian option on that particular subject that was the optimal option for the person or the community. That's the either or that Schaefer is known for. It's either good to steal, or it isn't. It's either good to murder, or it isn't. It's either good to stay true to your spouse, or it isn't. The Bible is clear that we are to hold fast to those good things, not only because they are right by God, but also because they are right and good for our society. If less people in our society stole things, we'd we'd have a better society. If less people committed adultery, we'd have a better society. If less people murdered, we'd have a better society. The more we hold fast to that which is good, whether proving it through dialogue or living it out on the Little League field, we can have a better society than we would have if we didn't hold fast to that which is good and abhor that which is evil. Am I making any sense? Historic Christianity stands on the either-or viewpoint. It's the bedrock. It's the foundation. Without either or, without absolutes, 
without antithesis, Christianity is meaningless. It's useless. Think about it. God either exists or he doesn't. Either or. It's either good to have faith in him or it isn't. In either or lines, I should say, if the either or lines are erased, then Christianity becomes an exercise in futility. It becomes a free-for-all of interpretation, of conflicting opinions. Everything is utterly relative. Under this model, pedophiles no longer do evil acts or go to hell. They have a mental disorder that they're born with. They can't help themselves but act upon their genetic urges. In fact, I shared this with you in another sermon, they're no longer pedophiles. Now we're calling them minor attracted individuals. They're minor attracted who in addition to this genetic component may have hit their head as a child. They may have even had a mother who had a screw loose. Or perhaps they were somewhat neglected as children. And so it's not their fault that they are attracted to minors. As a matter of fact, they are victims themselves. Victims of those of us who are ignorant and have misinterpreted them and their disorder this entire time. Oh, and the kids that these minor attracted men act out upon? Well, now, hopefully, as they get older and learn more about how incredibly ostracized these men were and how these men were forced by society to suppress their urges that they were born with. Hopefully those minors will learn to sympathize with these men and come to a place of not only understanding what they did, but also forgiving them because after all, they couldn't help themselves anyway. I hope you see what I'm getting at here. As we said when we were studying apologetics, there's a right way and wrong way. There's a good way and bad way. There's a righteous way and unrighteous way. And they are all outlined in Scripture. You can put whatever color lipstick you want on a pig, and it's still a pig. So please, Christian, for the sake of your own salvation, for the sake of the church, for the sake of the society that we live in, hold fast to what is good and abhor what is evil. Please do it in our communities, 
in your workplace, in our schools, in social media. My goodness, man, hold fast to that which is good everywhere you go and with everyone you talk to. Stop allowing people to call good evil and evil good. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, we read, this is God speaking through Isaiah, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. It is sinful to do such things. Proverbs 17, 15 says, He who justifies the wicked which is what that article is doing. We who justify, he who justifies the wicked and condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. But isn't this what we are seeing in the world today? It seems as though the world has been turned on its head, doesn't it? We're, we're, we're now, <clears throat> excuse me, justifying pedophilia and we are condemning parents. We're condemning parents who want to exercise their constitutional right to defend their children's minds at a school board meeting. Irrational thought pervades the thinking of the masses. All the more reason for us to hold fast to the good, to set the example, whether in dialogue or in action, we are to be found unwavering. However, to hold fast to that which is good is not enough. We must also hold fast to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. First and foremost, the Apostle Paul reasoned about these things that we have covered here this morning, and he did so comprehensively at times. He preached and wrote about hating evil and clinging to that which is good, and he did so in various forms and various nuances. But he never, ever, did so at the exclusion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel came first in everything that was Pauline because the gospel is what this book, the Bible, is about from Genesis to Revelation. And it should come first from our new birth in Christ to our death. We especially need to put the gospel first as a sense of urgency in today's American Christianity. Folks, listen. We got to put the gospel first in today's American Christianity. Why? Because a false gospel persists in American Christianity. We've talked about this many times in this church. 
the average person that calls themselves a Christian in the United States is receiving a gospel that tells them that God wants to bless them in their finances, in their job, in their possessions, and in their body. A gospel is being preached to them that says that God has a wonderful plan for their life and that the devil is at the helm of everything they encounter that is contrary to health, wealth, and prosperity. And they are taught that they have to, that what they have to do is rebuke that devil, bind his demons, and claim the promises of God that are theirs for the taking. If they would just believe it and speak it, they'd have it. Now, we know that this is a false gospel, don't we? But they don't know it's a false gospel. They don't. The majority of them probably aren't even saved because they've never heard the real gospel. And as such, they've never been given an opportunity to believe in that real gospel or know that real Jesus. That's the church in America. In a nutshell, what about the world? Those on the outside looking in at us. Well, they group us in with them. The false gospel people. They think that we're one with the Christians who live by the false gospel. The world thinks we're all the same. They don't even know that there's a false gospel and a real gospel. They don't know that there are two very different groups of people out there calling themselves by the same name, Christians. And it's up to us and only us to preach the real gospel, but not only preach it, but to let the world know that we are not in the same camp as the victims of the false gospel. They think, the world thinks, that we care more about cars and boats and summer homes than, than we care about sin. Because that's what they see when they turn on the TV, Christian television. They would be shocked, the world, if they came to a church like this one and did not find a very right Reverend Bishop so-and-so holding a $45,000 gold-plated microphone while giving the congregation a word from the Lord where the Lord himself told the pastor that he, God, wants that pastor's congregation to get him a new Gulfstream jet. Like Creflo Dalton told his congregation. He needed a new $65 million jet, and they bought him one. And these, these worldly people would be shocked to walk into one of our other churches to find that there isn't a 453-piece worship band 
of rock musicians, jazz musicians, classical musicians, all trained on a 400-foot stage, shooting 30 feet of fire into the air while smoke machines mimic the clouds of heaven. It's up to us to tell the world that this isn't the real gospel. Nobody else is going to tell them. It's up to us to tell those people who embrace a prosperity gospel that it's not the true gospel. It's our responsibility. And better yet, folks, it should be our joy to share the real gospel with these people. No matter what their reaction might be. Do you actually believe it's the good news? If we believe that it's good news, then we'll want to tell everybody about the good news. This, this is something that troubles me about Christians today. You never know that you were um, talking to them, that you were talking to a Christian when you befriend them. Because you, you could be friends with them for a long time and not even know they're a Christian. They never share the gospel with you. I'm absolutely certain that if someone gave them a brand new Cadillac right off the showroom floor for absolutely nothing, they would go and tell everybody they knew. But those same Christians have obtained the free gift of grace and of eternal life in fellowship with Jesus himself, and they don't tell anybody. In fact, many of them, you'd never even know, as I said, that they're believers. Amy and I had some, some brickwork done on our house this past summer. And the guy <clears throat> whose crew did the work is a friend of an acquaintance of mine. I didn't know the guy. Never met the guy before. Okay, I'm going to change the names to protect the innocent. His name's Joe. We'll call him Joe. And when Joe arrived, he introduced himself to me in our driveway. And when we began talking, we did what any two guys would do in this context. We shared our common experiences with our mutual acquaintance, who we'll call Tony. And we weren't even a minute and a half into our exchange when Joe began to share his testimony with me. He began to tell me about his rough childhood. And by the way, he's not a pedophile either, at least not to my knowledge. He began to tell me about his rough childhood and how he lived a life from very early on as a kid. Um, and then as a teen and a young adult who was always getting in trouble with the law and who would steal from you or rip you off at the drop of a hat. And he said, if I wanted what you had, I would just take it from you. He said, I was that bad. 
Then he shared with me how one day he was telling Tony, our mutual acquaintance, about his past and how the bad things that he did haunted him with tremendous guilt. And Tony just said one very, very simple thing to him that changed his entire life. He said, uh, Joe, you don't have to keep carrying that around with you, man. You don't have to, you don't have to go through life with that on your back. What a beautiful and tremendously powerful sentence. So Tony began to share the gospel with Joe. And he shared why and how he could be free once and for all from the sin and the guilt and the shame that he was carrying around with him all of those years. And Christ saved Joe that day. He got saved. Folks, there, there was no shame in the Garden of Eden until sin entered the Garden of Eden. The good news is that no matter how great your sin is and no matter how great your shame is because of that sin, Christ's work on Calvary's cross is greater than any sin you could ever commit. If you've committed your life to Christ and have believed in his atoning sacrifice for your sin, then there are no old sins of yours to be afraid of or to be ashamed of. Those sins have been washed away by Christ's shed blood on that cross. Your sins are gone. And they cannot condemn you ever again. You are forgiven in the eyes of your heavenly Father. He has accepted Christ's sacrifice for your sins, and he loves you with the Father's love, or with a Father's love. And in the Father's eyes, it's as though you've never sinned before. We need to grasp that as Christians, because many of us don't. And we still feel guilty about our old way of life. And we shouldn't. The good news is that you don't have to. There is now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. You've been set free from that, Galatians 5.1. You are now sons and daughters of God and joint heirs with Christ, Galatians 6, 6, Ephesians 1, 6, or I'm sorry, 118. You have been redeemed and are now God's own possession, Ephesians 1, 14. That's the true gospel. That's the good news, the real good news. If you've never committed your life to Christ, if you're still carrying around your sin and your shame for that sin, then I beg you, I beg you, believe me when I tell you that like Joe, you don't need to carry that around anymore. Lay it at the foot of the cross 
of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Ask him to forgive you of all of your sins, and he will. He has promised you that he will. And there's no sin, like I said, too big for him. I don't care what you've done. If you ask him to forgive you, he will forgive you. Then ask him to come into your life, commit your life to him, and he will save you right now, right here, right where you are. Whenever you hear this, he'll save you from eternal damnation and separation from God. Turn your life over to Christ and he will save you for all eternity, never to be reneged, never to be gone back on, never to be undone. You may not get a new boat or car or plane, but you will get something that can't rust out, that, that you will have forever, and that is fellowship with God forever. Let's pray. Glorious Lord, we thank you for your clear gospel. Please give us the wherewithal and the, the want to to spread your gospel throughout our community, starting with friends and acquaintances, strangers, whoever we come in contact with, cause people to cross our paths who need to hear your gospel and help us to be faithful to preach that gospel, to share that gospel with those people. Let it be in the forefront of our minds to do that work. It's the most glorious work we can do. Help us to see that, to comprehend it, to get in the habit of thinking about it. Who can I share the gospel with today? I pray, Lord, that you would rebuke the devil and his demons who want to constantly remind us of our old sin, our old way of life, who want to condemn us, who want to make us doubt our salvation, doubt your assurance. Rebuke him. In Jesus' name. Father, I pray as we go this morning that we will go with a single-minded purpose to do your will, no matter what it is, whether it be sharing the gospel or living a right life. 
doing something good for our neighbor. Help us to hold fast to that which is good and to do that which is good and to set an example of that which is good and help us, Lord, to hate what is evil. You know that our flesh sometimes gets the best of us. We pray that your spirit would come and that we would have the right frame of mind and be in the right place as stewards of our lives to welcome that Holy Spirit when he knocks on the door of our hearts to do your will. And I ask all these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. so thankful for the word that comes forth. Father, we come before you in these moments to, as we reflect on our, our week or even perhaps our morning, this morning we, we come to confess and, and repent that in so many ways we have not lived up to your statutes and your ordinances and your commands. At various times and in various ways we have clung to what is evil and we have shunned those things which we know to be good. 
thank you for the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended, that comes to us, not from within us, but from your inspired word, wherein we also find those things which you tell us. morning from the high priestly prayer. Father, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Give us assurance of sins forgiven by the precious blood of the Savior, Jesus Christ. And sanctify us, make us holy. Give us strength and courage and desire to abhor those things that are evil and to cling to those things that are good, regardless of the cost. Father, we thank you so much for the blessings that you have given to us, too many to count. We pray that even in the next few moments as we return a portion back to them, the night that our Savior was betrayed at dinner he took bread and after having given thanks for it he broke it and he said this is my body given for you take it, eat it, do it in remembrance of me the meal he took the cup and he said this is the blood of the new covenant shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins take it, drink it, do it in remembrance of me let's stand and sing Yeah. Thank you. I just roll my eyes. Serving the 